This morning um, we're reading from Matthew chapter 12, and starting at verse 22 and going through to verse 37. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by, by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgement for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, I got the gentle and lowly bit, so it's only fair that I get this bit as well, eh? <laughs> Morning, everyone. Now, let me lead us in prayer as we get stuck into this uh, rather confronting part of the Word of God. Let's pray. And we thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your Word and by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us. We thank you that you do this for our good, to make us more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we pray that uh, you'd help us to concentrate, to rejoice and tremble at your Word this morning. Uh, to lay aside any hindrances or distractions that we might grow in the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, a constant and well-known problem that plagues God's church is the temptation towards what I call the feel-good gospel. People don't want to hear the stuff that sounds negative or judgy, and so the trendy preachers don't talk about sin and judgment and repentance, but about blessing and happiness and overcoming life challenges and, and things like that. Now, of course, the obvious danger is that it's not long before Jesus moves from being saviour and lord to something like support crew and life coach. And hence we have that, that famous saying that sugar-coated preaching is dangerous to your soul, that not surprisingly is basically a paraphrase of what you find in the scriptures. 
As an illustration designed to correct the feel-good gospel temptation, you might have even heard of this, it's sort of been around, uh, there's this hypothetical scenario of the person who's on their deathbed, who has one hour to live and has asked you, the Christian, to explain the faith to them within that time. If what you would say to that person within your one hour was directly proportional to the revelation God has given across the breadth of Scripture, then you'd spend around 50 minutes of that hour talking about human sinfulness and our liability to judgment from the Holy God. And then the last 10 minutes, you'd tell them the good news of Jesus. Now, of course, just because it would be quantitatively proportional to the Scriptures doesn't necessarily mean that you should spend 50 minutes talking to someone on their deathbed about sin, judgment and hell. But I bring it up because if you're anything like me, then you'll feel that one of the hardest things about commending the good news of Jesus to others is warning people that human sinfulness renders them liable to judgment, to eternal punishment. Should warning form a significant part of our evangelistic endeavours? Should we be warning people of judgment and hell as part of the gospel? Well, Jesus' teaching to us today sheds a lot of light on that issue, so uh, we're going to get stuck into it together right now. The scene gets set from verse 22, where it says, Then they brought him, that is Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Which is sort of like the long version of asking, Could this be the Christ or the Messiah? And that's a right question to ask. All throughout the Old Testament, God has made clear that he would establish his rule over his chosen people Israel, resulting in blessing for them and therefore blessing for people of all nations. And yet, whilst it would be God alone doing this work, it would somehow be done through a person. The suffering servant who had the spirit of the Lord upon him, for example. The son of man who received all God's power and authority, Daniel 7. The king in the line of David who would rule over restored Israel, Ezekiel 34. If you recognise Jesus as fulfilling even one of these roles, it would be sensible, given the expectations of the Old Testament, to ask the question, could this be the son of David, the Messiah? We saw in last week's uh, passage, uh, John helpfully pointed out that in the current phase, that current phase of his earthly ministry, Jesus was showing himself to be the suffering servant from Isaiah. Uh, obviously a person, but also one who did divine work for God's Holy Spirit was upon him. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day the Pharisees, had made up their mind already that Jesus was not the Messiah because he posed a threat to their religious and political power. Uh, it's always those with a lot to lose who find it hardest to acknowledge the truth about Jesus, and that includes religious leaders. So in a somewhat desperate attempt to quell any suspicion that Jesus could be the Christ, they came up with an alternative explanation 
for the miracle he just performed. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, at one level, this is the right, if I can put it that way, kind of attack for them to, to, to bring. You see, if people believe that Jesus was anointed powerfully by the Spirit of God to bring the kind of restoration that the suffering servant of the Lord would bring, then it's not a very big step to wonder if he's also the ruler of God's new kingdom, that is the Christ. And so the Pharisees try to nip the problem in the bud, claiming Jesus' work is not done by the power of God, but by the devil. Beelzebul literally translates Lord of the Flies, and of course, it's basically a nickname for Satan. So according to the Pharisees, Jesus can't be the suffering servant who brings forgiveness and restoration that the Old Testament looked forward to. He can't be that guy, let alone the son of David, who rules over God's redeemed people. You know what? It's fascinating, isn't it? It's really telling that the Pharisees couldn't deny the fact that Jesus demonstrated supernatural power. They couldn't say the miracles failed. Anyone and everyone could see that this is real, significant, supernatural power that Jesus exercised. And so they ascribe satanic power, which is either an extremely bold or, more likely, definitely in my opinion, an extremely desperate move. So how does Jesus respond? Well, firstly, he dismantles the logic of uh, the, that move from the Pharisees. And after that, he sets the record straight about himself. So we begin with the dismantling of the logic. Verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand. This is very simple logic. You've got civil war, the country's gone. Satan's driving out Satan. His kingdom is therefore coming to an end. And it's a very, very clever point that Jesus makes here because even let's say he was driving out demons by Beelzebul, well, that would still mean that Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. And he's just pointed out that the Pharisees have unwittingly claimed that John the Baptist and Jesus were right. If Satan's kingdom is coming to an end, whose kingdom's coming in? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Pharisees don't really want to be saying that, so that's a logical problem. The second logical problem with the Pharisees' claim here is that it opens them up to exactly the same charge that they've levelled against Jesus. Verse 27, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, well, here's a question, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they, whoever they are, will be your judges. That is, the, the ones you are ruled over by. You know, if, I, if you drive out demons by the power of pink elephants, then obviously you're under the power of pink elephants. Like, whatever, it's just an arbitrary sort of claim that if you're going to make it against him, it can be made against them, and, and, and that should be rather problematic. Of course, the alternative explanation, which of course is the right one, is that Jesus is operating just as you would expect the suffering servant of the Lord to operate, just as you'd expect someone endowed with the Spirit of God to operate, just as you might even expect the Messiah to operate. 
And so verse 28, Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, Jesus is basically saying, if what I'm doing lines up with God's prophesied expectations, then yeah, I obviously am the suffering servant and even the Messiah, and yes, the kingdom of God therefore truly is being inaugurated. Now notice Jesus doesn't say to the Pharisees that the kingdom of God has come to you, but it has come upon you. You've just called God's special servant an agent of Satan. So if he really is the spirit-empowered Messiah, then you guys are in big trouble. And of course, these guys are in big trouble. For as Jesus goes on in his rebuke, he again makes the not-so-subtle claim that he truly is the Messiah. For he not only fulfills the role of the spirit-empowered servant but he exercises the kind of ruling that God alone is capable of doing. Once upon a time, in speaking to his exiled Israelites, Yahweh, the Lord, God himself said to them, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what Yahweh says, yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce, I will contend with those who contend with you. You might almost say that Yahweh is saying to his people in captivity, I will plunder you from the strong man uh, under which you are being held. Jesus, of course, alludes to this unique work of God and plainly uses it to describe what he himself has just done. Verse 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Ergo, I'm clearly against Satan because I'm plundering his possessions. The implication is that Jesus, as Jesus is acting in the way God alone has promised to act, it is far more likely that he's the Messiah than an agent of Satan. So with the logic of the Pharisees' claim dismantled and with Jesus affirming what the people were thinking, is this the son of David, he then delivers an important teaching about how people ought to approach him. He starts off by making it clear that there is no such thing as being spiritually neutral. Every person who's ever lived and is alive today is either for Jesus, that is, they acknowledge he's the Christ who has come from God, or else they are against him. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And by the way, this is the language of judgment and salvation, if you've got your Old Testament glasses on. Uh, in the Bible, gathering is what happens for those who are saved. Scattering is what happens for those who are under the Judgment of God. The classic example of, of course, the Tower of Babel. They try to make a name for themselves. God scatters them in judgment. The ten northern tribes of Israel, or their ongoing idolatry, they get scattered, dispersed by the Assyrians. Uh, but whereas on the, uh, the day of Pentecost, people from Jews from all nations under heaven are gathered to receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the language of the judgment of God. And by the way, it's the reason that mature Christians 
barring health reasons and holidays, are almost always at church on a Sunday or, or here with us on, online if, they, if that's what they need to be. Gathering with the people of God is part of the spiritual DNA of those who know the Lord's salvation. But either you are for Jesus or you are against him. Or you're for him, hence you're saved, or you're against him, hence you're under the judgment of God. There is absolutely no such thing as being spiritually neutral. If Jesus is not your Lord, if he's not your Christ, then you will face the judgment of God. As Jesus was speaking these words, though, thankfully, thank God, there was still time for people to stop being against him and to start being with him or for him. And so, therefore, Jesus said, verse 31, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Friends, it is possible, no matter how sinful you've been, no matter how much sin someone has in their life, to turn and to be with Jesus rather than against him, to find salvation and forgiveness rather than be liable to judgment. But there is one exception, one kind of sin that, according to Jesus, will never be forgiven. So continuing from verse 31, but blasphemy against the spirits will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Uh, Blasphemy, by the way, means to knowingly slander or or speak against uh, God, uh, who he is, what he's done. And so as we read these words, we can't help but think, well, what does it mean to blaspheme? What does it mean to speak against the Holy Spirit and Why does that have a different outcome to speaking against the Son of Man, to speaking against Jesus? Well, if you remember from Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is this human-like figure who approaches God, God being the Ancient of Days. And when he approaches God, he's given all God's power and authority and he then rules over all nations. All nations are to worship him. Well, at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has not yet approached the Ancient of Days. It's only when we get to the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection that he will then say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Matthew chapter 28. And even then, he doesn't uh, sort of conclude the final judgment, if you like. He commands that disciples be made from all nations until the end of the age. So at the point of Matthew 12, you could be forgiven for rejecting Jesus as the Son of Man. You'd you'd have time to eventually realise that he is indeed the Son of Man and also the Christ, and then you'd need to repent and, and, and receive his forgiveness so as to be for him rather than against him. If you still reject him once you, he's proven to be the Son of Man, well, there's no hope. But Jesus was most certainly performing his miracles in the power of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was therefore, at this point, making clear that Jesus is the suffering servant, the great servant of the Lord from Isaiah, 
who also accomplishes the divine work of God. The Pharisees have referred to that servant's work as the work of the devil, rejecting the clear testimony of God, the Holy Spirit. That was dangerous because it was the suffering servant of the Lord who especially brought forgiveness to Israel. If they rejected him, they rejected the forgiveness he brought. If they did not receive him, they'd miss forgiveness in this age and in the age to come. Now, that's not to say that blasphemy against the Spirit isn't also possible today. It most certainly is. It's just that on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, it's become a broader phenomenon. God the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist. He bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord who brought forgiveness by his sacrifice at the cross and who rose as the son of David whose body would not see decay and who ascended as the great son of man who would and does rule over all people. If you know that there is no other name by which our sins can be forgiven, if you know that Jesus is the fully divine Son of God, and yet you willfully and resolutely reject his rule, then of course you will remain forgiven in eternity. Uh, Did I say forgiven? That was really wrong. Of course you will remain unforgiven in eternity. I guess a simple way of putting it is that there can be what I'm going to call unsettled rejection of Jesus as opposed to settled rejection of him. You cannot currently know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and yet uh, be interested, knowing that there's a possibility that you could be convinced and uh, if you are convinced before it's too late, praise God, you'll turn and put your trust in him. But you can know that Jesus actually is the divine son of God, the saviour of the world. And with high-handed pride because of what you've got to lose, maybe, you can just flat out deny and continue to reject him. Uh, By definition, you're saying no to the forgiveness of God. You will remain unforgiven in eternity. Now, at this point with the Pharisees, the jury is still out. Even though they're about as close to settled rejection as they can be, uh, the jury is still out. And so Jesus now frames his teaching as a a dire warning. And I think this is the part that, that we especially need to hear, not because we're in Christ, but because this is something that we need to be aware of for the sake of those who are yet to be in Christ. From verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, and a tree is recognised by its fruit. Simple teaching, whatever the tree is actually like, sooner or later you'll know what it's like because of the stuff it does. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, the same words John the Baptist used, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. It's like the tree and the fruit. The tree is your heart, the fruit is what you say. Your heart's full of evil, sooner or later it's going to be obvious that you kind of say, that is you believe Stuff that's evil. Verse 35, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. And we rightly get the sense that Jesus is speaking in a, in an, about an ongoing phenomenon. What you say reflects the condition of your heart, sort of in a, a general 
ongoing sins. I mean, you know, a lot of you who know me will say, Ben's the kind of guy who says, I don't know, guitars are awesome, right? You kind of know, like, this is a kind of, uh, I could say guitars are terrible and you'd probably go, he's having a bad day, you know? (laughs) You know that's not really kind of what I say, what I project, what I believe. Uh, So it is here. Whatever the heart is full of, it it has an overflow uh, in the speech and really the speech is a reflection of the the belief. You're the kind of person that's going to say, let's plot how to kill Jesus Uh, and uh, he's definitely a, you know, he's a friend of sinners in in a negative way. Why does he hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and, uh, well, you know what, the spirit he's in, no, he's doing it by the work of Satan. That's the kind of thing you're going to go on about it. It sort of says... You look like you've got a pretty settled rejection of him. That's, that's what you're saying with your evil heart. And so, verse 36, But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. And of course, in this context, it's clear that the words he's referring to, the empty words or the words by which you'll be acquitted or condemned, are words about Jesus, are words about who he is, his role, what he has done. What you say about Jesus, i.e. what you believe about Jesus, forms the basis on how you will fare on the day of judgment. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you're that kind of person, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans chapter 10, verse 8, 9. No one speaking by the Spirit can say Jesus be accursed, and only by the Spirit can anyone say Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians 8. Knowingly rejecting the truth about Jesus is an especially damnable sin. Why? Well, because it amounts to the rejection of even the possibility of God's forgiveness. And the reason Matthew's included this teaching and the reason Jesus said it is because it is a warning that people need to hear. I want all those who are weary and heavy burdened to come to the gentle and lowly Lord to find rest for their souls. And I equally want them to hear that if they are settled in their rejection of Jesus, they will remain unforgiven in this age and in the age to come. And if I only preach the first half, I've not actually done justice to the gospel of God or even to the words of Jesus himself. By way of implication, it's uh, the first and most important and obvious thing I need to say right off the bat is that uh, whilst church is for Christians and I speak to those who are saved, I recognise that there's a possibility that some here might not yet know Jesus Lord. Maybe you're watching at the moment and uh, you're someone who doesn't yet uh, recognise Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, who alone can offer you salvation. If that's you, and you know that he alone can give forgiveness for sins, if you know that he is the way to be in a right relationship with God and there's no other, then for goodness sake, don't remain in your hard-hearted rejection of him. Turn and put your trust in Jesus. The way to do that's simple. You say, hey God, yeah, I'm a sinner. I've, um, I've 
not accepted Jesus to this point as my Lord and Saviour, but uh, gee, I want to turn from that. I want Jesus to be my Lord and Saviour. Help me to live for him from now on. You can thank God that you'll have passed over from death to life, that you'll have gone from being unforgiven to eternally forgiven. Uh, I actually, a bit of a sad story, have a, a... know a story of someone uh, who was speaking to a a fellow Jew who was not yet a believer in Jesus and this Jewish person got to the point where they said I actually believe that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah and that he did die to pay for the sins of the world and that he rose bodily was bodily resurrected from the dead and he is Lord and so the person evangelizing this Jewish person said well Will you put your trust in him? Oh, no, of course not. Why not? Because I'm a Jew. That's why. What a dreadful thing. What a, what a dreadful answer to give. What a, what a great indication of the evil of the heart that they can know the truth and still defiantly reject the lordship of Jesus. Make sure that's not you. Make sure that... If you've been thinking about putting your trust in Jesus and you're not there, don't wait. It might be tomorrow that the Son of Man decides he will consummate the whole judgment process. He'll return and that'll be it. But what about for us who are in Christ? Well, I think, as I said before, as Jesus did, we need to make sure that we don't shy away from giving the right warning when it comes to commending the gospel of Jesus. Ever notice how in Acts chapter 2, in the great sermon on the day of Pentecost, right at the end you've got Peter saying, with many other words, he warned them, save yourselves from this crooked and depraved generation, Acts chapter 2. Or you ever realise in Hebrews 12, uh, if they did not listen to him who warned from earth, how much more will they be destroyed if they don't listen to him to warned from heaven? Teaching The gospel involves warning about judgment. The second and final thing I want to say by way of implication is that um, if we are in Christ, which I take it most, if not all of us here are, um, you can be really confident and assured that you're not actually able to commit blasphemy against the Spirit. That's actually impossible for you to do. The fact that you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord means the Spirit indwells you already. You have agreed with his witness. You've taken upon his evangelistic uh, role and you've said yes to Jesus. But you can rightly be concerned with truth, with getting Jesus right and not getting him wrong, with saying that, yes, he is the suffering servant because he's working in the operation of the Spirit of God as opposed to being an agent of Satan, Not that I think, well, I hope you wouldn't suddenly confuse Jesus for an agent of Satan. But you know what I mean, right? And so I think it's really important, especially in our neck of the woods, we've got a bit of a deficiency deficiency in this area of being unashamed of discernment. You see, it's very easy when you say, I actually reject this particular teaching or I want to be careful about uh, this kind of proclamation, to be seen as, well, that's negative and judgy and tribal, It's a really easy thing to get thrown around. It's actually usually, if not always, or almost always harder to argue for a biblical position that our culture perceives as being more conservative than not. 
It's like you are almost always battling against the tide to argue for something that you see as, as biblically sound if our culture sees it as, as a bit conservative. It's important that we are unashamed of being discerning because our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, is the embodiment of truth. I am the way, the truth and the life. We are to care about truth because we care about Jesus. You might have some questions or comments regarding that and, uh, and I hope if, uh, if you do, you'll put them on the, um, uh, the Connect form from the QR code. How about I lead us in prayer? Hand back over to Jono, let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that your word warns with the warnings that we need to hear, both those within the church and those without. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone this morning who has uh, not yet put their faith in the Lord Jesus, who does know that he is Lord and Saviour, who does know that he alone is the way to find forgiveness, that in the power of your Holy Spirit you would enable them to turn and repent and put their faith in Christ and stand firm both now and on the last day. Father, soften the hearts that need to be softened so that they don't commit that unforgivable sin of ultimately rejecting Jesus for who he is. And Father, make us unashamed of our Lord, and particularly in regards to the fact that he is truth. May we be unashamed of the truths about Jesus that your word carries. Uh, may we be practised in discernment on account of our love for him and our want to see people understand him aright and not ascribe to him evil. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.